0: Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business.
1: Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is the Honorable Judge Robert L. Brown. You may not readily know his name, but you are living by some of the rules and laws he studied, argued, and enacted while serving as Associate Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court from 1991 until his retirement in 2012. This man of law and literature is well-educated, thoughtful, and a prolific writer. Currently, he is of counsel to Little Rock, Arkansas's law firm, Friday, Eldridge & Clark. He has been a contributing editor for the Arkansas Times and Arkansas Business Magazine and has written numerous legal opinions and articles on a variety of subjects. In 2010, Counselor Brown published his own book titled Defining Moments, Historic Decisions by Arkansas Governors from McMath through Huckabee. In this book, he writes about the 10 consecutive governors of Arkansas that, during their tenure, made difficult choices in education, environment, social justice, creationism, political corruption, and more. Today, we will hear a firsthand account of some Arkansas folklore from my guest, Mr. Robert L. Brown, who personally knew and worked with nine of the governors he writes about in his book, his perspective is more than just historical data. It comes from his personal experience and knowledge of these Arkansas leaders from whence came a U.S. president, two U.S. senators, and two presidential contenders. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the Honorable Robert L. Brown. Everybody calls you Bob, though, don't they?
2: They do. Thank you, Kerry. Delighted to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. In reading about you, I learned your father was an Episcopal priest. You moved a lot, Love higher education, reading, and learning. You were born in Houston, Texas, began elementary school in Waco, moved to an all-boys school in Richmond, Virginia, before moving in the ninth (laughs) grade to Forest Park in Little Rock, Arkansas. Exactly. Tell us about all that moving and about your father.
2: Well, my dad was a very uh, important figure in the church, and that was recognized early on. He went to a seminary in Virginia, and the bishop that he went to into the ministry under decided he needed to have a learn a bit of humility. So he sent him down to Harlingen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, where and this is the depression, where people were starving. And my father had married a Virginia lady literally a lady so it was a little bit like giant you know
1: (laughs) the movie giant
2: (laughs) no i'm talking about yeah the movie yeah Yeah. sure and my dad was kind of rough-humed and here he had this virginia lady they moved down to harlingen and they almost starved to death i mean it was just a really rough existence and that's where my older sister was born but my dad moved a lot he moved to waco during the war and then to richmond and richmond was like I mean, he met somebody in Richmond when he first got there, an older woman in her 90s who had ridden on the knee of Robert E. Lee. I mean, (laughs) and you figure when you hear that story, you figure that, yeah, well, the Civil War was over about 80 years earlier. So, you know, that easily computes. But Richmond was is a very old South community, even in 1947, which is when we moved there. But we were there, and Dad did work with displaced persons in Europe and edited the Southern Churchmen and wrote two books himself and then was elected bishop of Arkansas. And we moved here in 1955 just in time for the Little Rock crisis, which I lived through and he lived through and wrote a book about.
1: The Central High Little Rock crisis?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah Central High. I had gone my second year at Hall High School, but I was at Central my sophomore year, Hall my junior year, and then they closed all schools, high schools, my senior year, 58, 59. So what did you do? I finished up in Austin, Texas. Uh, my dad's best friend was the bishop of Texas, and he said, send Bob down here and we'll educate him. So I went down to Austin, Texas to a coeducational boarding school in 1958. Now, that was a rarity, a coeducational boarding school in 1958. And that's where I spent my senior year.
1: So how did all of these experiences affect your later decisions when you began to uh, work on the bench? Do you think all these different places you lived and, these ex- and the crisis of 1959 in Little Rock Absolutely. helped formulate?
2: Absolutely. Uh, probably the most formulating event or experience in my life was living in New York. You know, in the early 60s, 63 to 65.
1: So that was after you went to college.
2: That was after I went to Suwanee. I went four years to Suwanee, which was an all-male uh, liberal arts college.
1: And you were uh, honor English and honors. Yes. And then you went to Columbia, New York, again on English and honors. That's right. And that's where you said it, you formulated a lot of your opinions about decisions you made on the bench. But you weren't even going to be— a lawyer it doesn't look like from your resume it looks like you decided to get your jd juris doctorate from the university of virginia when did you decide i'm going from english to literature oh, was i a sat- mean i'm going from english literature to it was to- a
2: saturday night in new york and i decided a
1: <laughs> few, few pubs few beers down
2: <laughs> <laughs> no i was sitting in my apartment and i had been in, in, in literature english literature for about seven years and i was my scholarship ran out. I had a Woodrow Wilson scholarship, and that was supposed to be for somebody who was going to go and become a professor in college. And I went with, my scholarship ran, ran out. I went to work for a life insurance company, and I decided I kind of liked that work, you know, drafting contracts. I was using the other side of my brain. And, you know, I had this light bulb go on, and I said, I'm going to law school. Wow. Wow. And so I applied to two law schools and the rest. And
1: and yeah. And but then you ended up getting admitted to the you ended up coming back and taking your the Arkansas bar and getting admitted to Arkansas. How did you end up back in Arkansas? Well, I that that was home.
2: And I had a good opportunity here. How could you say
1: that was home after you lived in so many different places?
2: Well, I mean, I'd I'd lived in Arkansas for three years for high school. I think where you go to high school is really, or junior high in high school, that really becomes kind of your home. That's where your roots are. And uh, going to Virginia, I mean, that was a unique experience. But New York was just uh, something that was just, everything was happening in the early 60s, as you know. But I had a good opportunity here with a law firm and decided to take that opportunity, and I worked with them for about three years, and then I got restless and decided I needed to go with the prosecutor's office. And the prosecuting attorney was a young man who was 27 years old, which is way too young to be a prosecuting attorney, named Jim Guy Tucker. And he wanted me to sign on with him and, you know, be a deputy prosecutor. And there was a lot of money available in 1968 and in the early 70s because of John McClellan and a bill he had passed in Congress that made grants available to prosecutors in the courts. And so he had this extra money, and he said, Come on, join my staff, and we'll just have some fun. And, boy, we did. (laughs) (laughs) It was a wild time because we were kind of hippies, and the police didn't like us. And, you know, we were – anyway, it was an interesting time.
1: He's like, he was on the radio, and I called him a swashbuckler.
2: (laughs) Jim guy takes risks.
1: (laughs) He does. All right, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with retired associate judge of the Arkansas Supreme Court, Mr. Robert L. Brown. Still to come, Arkansas politics and Judge Brown's personal experience with nine of the ten governors he writes about in his book, Defining Moments, Historic Decisions by Arkansas Governors from Sid McMath through Mike Huckabee. We'll also ask which cases he's most proud of, and maybe some he's not. And since it's Halloween month of October, if we have time, we will have Counselor Brown expound on his deep and fascinating knowledge of the Salem Witch Trials in the 1600s. We'll be back after a break.
0: You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. A production of flagandbanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she embraced the internet and rebranded her company as simply flagandbanner.com. In 2004, she became an early blogger. Since then, she has founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, began publishing her magazine, Brave, and in 2016, branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcast. And today, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years. If you'd like to sponsor this show or get involved with any of Carrie McCoy's enterprises, send an email to me, Gray. That's G R A Y at flagandbanner.com. Telling American made stories, selling American made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie.
1: Thank you, Gray. You're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with retired associate judge of the Arkansas Supreme Court. Robert L. Brown. We'll call him Bob Brown. That just rolls off your tongue. <laughs> Before the break, we talked about your dad was the bishop of Arkansas. We talked right. about you were actually in high school during the uh, 1959 uh, Central High Crisis. Um, you've come back to Arkansas. But it's your home. You've decided to become a lawyer. And now you're dabbling in politics with Jim Guy Tucker. Um, you began campaigning for Jim Guy and then when he uh, and then you ended up somehow going to uh, Washington with the uh, with Dell Bumpers. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell me how all of that transpired before you came because you did end up coming back home and going into private.
2: Practice. Yeah, I came back home and really I was coming back home and I was going to work with Bobby Kennedy. Um, I had voted against him in New York because I thought he was a carpetbagger but I thought he was a, a good candidate. So I was going to work for him, and he got assassinated on my trip back to Arkansas. I oh, woke, my gosh. I woke up one morning and saw Frank McAwitt standing on the hood of his car talking about Bobby Kennedy being shot and might, maybe dying. But anyway, I, I came back, and I was But gonna, you
1: went to Washington with Jim Guy, or you went to Washington I went to with—
2: I went to Washington with Dale Bumpers. And you asked about what was the transition from Jim Guy to Dale Bumpers. Mm-hmm. I helped manage Jim Guy's campaign for attorney general after I left the prosecutor's office. I didn't want to go to the attorney general's office, and Dale Bumpers was about the most exciting figure in Arkansas politics. I mean, he was just uh, dazzling. So um, Tom McCray, who was his executive assistant, contacted me and said, do you want to come work? And I said, yeah. So I... Uh, wrote speeches. I uh, did legislative work, drafted bills. I did prison work. I was responsible for the prisons. And then we got involved in the Fulbright campaign. That was 1974. He decided to run, not for a third term as governor, but to run against Fulbright. And he won uh, decisively. Dale Bumpers. Dale Bumpers won
1: decisively.
2: Mm -hmm. And frankly i wanted to go to the public service commission but i didn't get that appointment and he said no bob i want you in washington oh so i went to with richard arnold archie schaefer and i went to uh washington with dale bumpers
1: and then stayed there till I, sh-
2: I stayed there with dale for two years and then jim guy came up and i switched over and was his Executive assistant.
1: And he was a congressman.
2: And he was a congressman.
1: So Bumpers was a senator.
2: Bumpers was a senator. And
1: then Jim Guy graduated from the from the Attorney General to become a congressman. In he Washington.
2: became a congressman, yeah. He took Wilbur Mills' uh, seat. Oh that's right. Yeah. So uh I helped him set up his office and again it was an exciting time.
1: And then he lost.
2: And then yes, and I worked in that campaign and I managed that campaign.
1: Is that why you came home?
2: No, I was coming home anyway. If I had stayed in Washington, my opportunities would have been as a domestic relations attorney or a criminal defense attorney or a lobbyist. And I just didn't want to spend the time uh, developing a reputation where other doors would have opened. Coming back to Arkansas was just a a piece of cake because I had my reputation. And even though it was a hard campaign and Tucker had lost, uh, I had a lot of friends here.
1: So you started Harrison and Brown Law Firm.
2: It was a ferocious law firm.
1: What does that mean?
2: That means that people were just afraid of us.
1: <laughs> oh, good. That's a good thing when you're a lawyer, I believe. I was
2: a junkyard dog. No, we were uh, serious, and we, uh, he had a practice going, and I developed a practice, and it was just a lot of fun.
1: So why did you leave that and go in to, and decide to become an associate justice for the Arkansas Supreme Court?
2: Uh, Fred went and became general counsel for the University of Arkansas, and I became of counsel with the law firm and decided here again uh, one day that I was going to run for the Supreme Court. Just there one wa- day? There wasn't this groundswell of support saying, Bob, you need to run for the Supreme Court. I just decided to do it. And I had written an article on George Rose Smith, who was kind of an icon for the Supreme Court, and Steele Hayes, who was a justice on the court, said, Bob, why don't you run for the Supreme Court? And I'd never thought about it. But then I thought, well, the stars are aligned. My son is 11. Uh, Charlotte could stop work. And, you know, she's a formidable campaigner. And why not? And it's the best thing I ever did.
1: So, uh, campaigning, uh, once you're a judge, are you always a judge or do you ever have to be, are you, do you have to run again and again? Are you,
2: uh, on the Supreme court, you have an eight year term, which is just wonderful. So every eight years you had to run. And, but once you're elected, it's hard to get somebody out who's an incumbent.
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I had a hard campaign with my, with my first campaign, but after that it was duck soup
1: (laughs) and duck soup. You're on the bench. You know all the governors when you decided to start writing your book, Defining Moments, Historic Decisions by Arkansas Governors from McMath to Huckabee. When did you decide, I'm going to start writing this book?
2: Well, I I knew about Profiles in Courage, which was John F. Kennedy's book, where he took several people in government, throughout government, who had made historic decisions, really courageous decisions. And that was kind of my model. I took that book and I decided I'm going to find defining moments in these 10 governments where they had to make a very courageous des- decision in some cases or a really not so courageous decision. But this was a moment in time that defined their character.
1: What you call that book that you read?
2: Uh, Profiles in Courage Uh-oh, by John it. F. Kennedy and Ted said his speechwriter actually wrote it oh.
1: <laughs> so did you listen to my interview with mr ernie dumas
2: i did as a matter of fact we started listening to it this afternoon
1: oh darn because i was going to ask you the same questions and i don't want you no, to use no, any no, of I don't, his I, you, you, you can't i say like, do you remember that i asked him a question
2: no i don't i just listened to the first of it so i'm
1: you're 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 fresh
2: yeah i'm fresh i, know, right. I know ernie well
1: I knew you did, and uh, and y- y'all have a lot of opinion. Y'all both know a lot about governors, and so when he came on, I asked him this question to give me one word to describe each governor. Did you hear me? Did you hear that mm-hmm. part of the interview? I didn't. Oh, good. I didn't. I okay, didn't. good. So you won't be influenced. So you wrote about Sid McMath, about his bout with the Dixiecrats, which I had to look up what the Dixiecrats are, yeah, and you can yeah. explain to our listeners in just a minute what they are, but... If you were to give me one word for Sid McMath, what would it be?
2: Uh, true Democrat. Those are two, two words, but a real Democrat.
1: So tell our listeners what his bout with the Dixiecrats was.
2: Well, the Dixiecrats, uh, after Harry Truman uh, decided to try to pass some landmark civil rights legislation in 1948, doing away with lynching, uh, giving African-Americans the right to vote, Uh, equal opportunities as far as motels and restaurants. A far-reaching piece of legislation, Strom Thurmond, who was a governor of South Carolina, Ben Laney, who was our governor, and others decided to uh, formulate a states' rights party called the Dixiecrats and mount their own campaign. And that's what they did. Strom Thurmond became the uh, presidential candidate eventually for the Dixiecrats. And um, obviously Harry Truman uh, won that election, but the Dixiecrats really cut into the Democratic base. But Sid McMath was gutsy because I think Arkansas was very close to being majority Dixiecrat, and Sid McMath held the state for the Democratic Party, which was a formidable achievement on his part. But the Dixiecrats were, I won't say that they were – shall we say they're very conservative mm-hmm. old guard southern democrats
1: and francis cherries he was another governor if you were to use an adjective for him judicial is he was he a judge
2: he was a judge oh yeah
1: so you said his ploy was to label his opponent a communist
2: oval Fabus, and oval Fabus was at least a socialist You know, he had gone, he he denied this during the campaign, but he had gone to a school called Commonwealth College over in Mena. And uh, he had been elected president of the student body and was uh, very much in the socialist camp. And uh, during the campaign, he came down from the hills and worked for Cinematic Math, as a matter of fact, and was a war veteran. But he decided to run against Francis Cherry. And Francis Cherry, you know, had won one term. And those were two-year terms. I thought it would be, again, duck soup to win another one. <laughs> but uh, Orval Faubus was just formidable. I mean, he was just probably probably the best politician that Arkansas has had.
1: Better than Bill Clinton, huh? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, Orville Faubus beat, obviously, Francis Cherry. Yep. And so um, I bet I know what adjective you're going to give Orville Faubus.
2: I'll give him pragmatic.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say politician.
2: No, pragmatic. Very practical. Ah, You know, he wanted to win a third term and actually won about five terms. But he did what was necessary. I think in his heart of hearts, he was a liberal. You know, his dad was a communist. And he'd gone to this Commonwealth. Oh,
1: that's how he got labeled.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he went to, well, he really got labeled because of Commonwealth College. But in his heart of hearts, I think he was progressive. But... He saw the handwriting on the wall, and Arkansas was turning more conservative. And there were Jim Johnson, the segregationist, was uh, looming large. And I think Jim Johnson and some of the things he was doing with amendments to the state constitution and whatnot scared Faubus in becoming a staunch, Dixiecrat conservative, maybe even a racist.
1: Because he uh, blocked the integration at the Little Rock Central High. And
2: that was his defining moment. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to do that, but he did.
1: And that was the year you were in high school?
2: Uh, yes. Yes, I was at Hull, but I just left Central.
1: Uh, and then another one that you were friends with, Winthrop Rockefeller.
2: I think Rockefeller is probably, even though I work with Dale and think he's the most uh, magnificent uh, Governor, we've had a lot of respects. I think Rockefeller was really the uh, trailblazer for Arkansas. I mean, here's a guy who's Republican, one of the richest men in the world, uh, probably had a bit of a imbibing problem with alcohol. <laughs> no
1: problem. He definitely did.
2: <laughs> I'm trying to be politic here. Yeah,
1: you and,
2: are. And uh, was very shy and came to Arkansas because of Army buddies he made, you know, during World War II, where he was a hero. And uh, you know, won the bronze star and all that. But I think he is the one who really changed the courts for Arkansas, the course for Arkansas politics,
1: because of his New progressive York stand.
2: A progressive stand. Uh, the old guard Democrats, he stood up to him.
1: He, and you said he 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 did a tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. on the state capitol steps.
2: That is an example of his courage. I mean, this is like four days after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And the pastors in Little Rock, the African-American pastors, wanted to do a memorial service at the state capitol. And they invited Rockefeller, and Rockefeller didn't have to do it. You know, it was a political liability. He could have been in danger. He could have been shot on the capitol steps. And he did it. And he joined arms with the, the pastors and saying, "We shall overcome." It was a very, very courageous thing to do. And he was the only governor in the country to do something out in the open, publicly like that. And he almost lost the election six months later for another term. Because of that, I'm convinced.
1: Mm. Dale bumpers.
2: Oh, magnificent
1: magnificent yeah. <laughs>
2: wow everybody yeah.
1: likes dale bumpers well he
2: was dazzling i know he's uh he's ernie's uh favorite ernie dumas's favorite uh well i obviously worked with dale for four years and i know him well knew him well uh but again i, I think dale implemented rockefeller's programs legislative programs for education uh for reorganization of state government for raising the state income tax to fund programs, to creating, I don't know if he created this, but uh, he certainly worked with African Americans. Rockefeller wanted to have a commission for African uh, African Americans and whites to work together to better the, the relationships. So Dale took a lot of those ideas and programs and implemented them.
1: You said Dell Bumpers battled against political corruption.
2: He did. He did. He had to fight the old guard in the General Assembly. And he was very adept at doing that. Uh, political corruption in the sense that, uh, you know, we still had pockets in Arkansas where you had controlled counties by county judges, legislators, whatever. Uh, they tried to create a special judicial district as a matter of fact, up in Faulkner County, which is Conway and Marlton, uh, so that they could control the prosecutor up there and control the judges, and they just had their own little fiefdom. And there was a bill that passed the General Assembly, and Dale vetoed it. And everyone said, well, if you veto that bill, you're never going to be elected dog catcher after that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he was elected U.S. Senator. So (laughs) what did they know?
1: (laughs) Right. We, uh, good does win out sometimes, people. Yeah. Um, let's see the next one. David Pryor.
2: It just the nicest guy in the That's world. what everybody says about him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but like David. And, you know, I ran a campaign against him with, with Jim Guy, and I learned a real lesson. Jim Guy probably is more talented, more adept at certainly at governing and legislation and the— Ins and outs of being in government than David, and I thought that would carry the day, but David everybody liked, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and likability, a nice personality always wins the day. And I learned a lesson in politics by that campaign.
1: Hmm. A likable personality, David. David Pryor's veto of the U.S. Corps of Engineers Bell Folly Dam, you said, was his. Oh boy, was his. Well, moment that was just moment. That
2: was development, you know. Um, real estate developers. I think John McClellan was involved in it. I think Bill Alexander, who was a congressman, and uh, what it would do, it just would destroy. I think the name of the the river was the uh, the Spring River, something like that. It would destroy that natural stream, and there were few free-running streams in the state of Arkansas, and that would be dammed up and destroyed. And a couple of environmentalists in the state came to David and said, you just really can't do that.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And uh, he and his staff, I talked to some of his staff, and they got in a helicopter and flew over the site and this, that, and the other. And David said, I'm just, back then a governor could stop a Corps of Engineers project, and that's what it was, Corps of Engineers but the core was going to create this lake, and then the developers could create communities around the lake and sell those homes. So that's where the money was, mm-hmm. but recreation and all that. But David, it was, a, it was a very, I thought, courageous decision for him to do that, and he stuck by his guns. Frank White. Frank White was just a uh, – you know, I, I criticized Frank, and I, I recognized his talents, uh, the fact that he was a, a great master of ceremonies – great fundraiser, could really tell a joke. Again, everybody liked Frank White. But I didn't like the fact that he uh, introduced a bill, and he didn't do it just on his own. I mean, it sailed through the House and the Senate. And the bill basically said you had to give equal time to creationism as far as the way we developed, humans developed, kind of the genesis theory, equal time to that, and Darwin, evolution, evolution. If you're going to teach evolution, you have to teach Genesis. And, of course, that piece of legislation that passed was taken to court as an, an infringement on the protection against uh, creating a real religion with state legislation. You know, it was a violation of the First Amendment, separation of church and state. And, uh, you know, the people who attacked the legislation won. But I thought... You know, that Frank had made a commitment, I think, during his campaign that he was going to uh, introduce that legislation. He was a very devout Christian and uh, kind of followed up on that commitment and got it done. But I thought it was the wrong thing for him to do.
1: It, uh, you're saying the endorsement of creationism is to teach uh, Christianity in church?
2: Uh, I uh, mean, in, church, school? yeah, in schools? In yeah. So,
1: oh, I didn't know that's what endorsement of creationism is it's to yeah. teach christianity well, no,
2: in it, it was endorsement that's that might not be the best word to use mm-hmm. but the bill said that if you teach darwinism, evolution yeah. darwinism you have to teach creationism. Creationism. i gotcha so equal time type thing and bill, that was a violation of church and state
1: uh, bill clinton
2: gutsy with his uh trying to reform education in the state and testing teachers can you imagine
1: they were mad (laughs) i remember i actually remember that they were mad
2: oh as wet hornets i mean this was just um it it was just amazing
1: was it a good decision
2: oh yeah oh yeah i think so um
1: did it even do anything
2: that's what i always wondered did it really
1: ever do anything well
2: i think it weeded out i hate to say this and publicly but i think there were some people that shouldn't have been in the classroom and maybe some of them were involved in athletics but anyway it weeded out a few people who did not ha- know how to add did <laughs> not know how to uh, write a sentence i mean i'm just being brutally frank and uh, so it so did I work think, yeah yeah and i think people who took the test series of tests that about 90 percent passed
1: but, 10, yeah. but 10% did not.
2: 10% did not.
1: And some people didn't even take the test. They just refused to do it. They just oh, said, yeah. I'm quitting.
2: Yeah. So yeah. that doesn't yeah. even
1: include those. Jim got Tucker, who you loved, well, uh, I, I, or you worked
2: for him. I worked with Tucker, and uh, I didn't work with him when he was governor. I was over at the Supreme Court by that time. But uh, he took <laughs> – he decided to put a tax on the soft drink industry and because – Clinton left him with a bit of a deficit in, in state government, and he had to find some money real quick because people are going to be throwing off the Medicaid rolls, et cetera. So, how did he find that money? Well, he could. The simple solution would have been to raise the sales tax, but that's regressive. I mean, that hurts everybody. Yeah. And he decided that something like a tax on soft drink syrup. What's a better route to go?
1: Well, it is a Medicaid. He's trying to fund Medicaid, yeah, which has yeah, got t- health problems caused from sodas. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going there. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, they have related those two together.
2: That, they, they said this is the poor man's luxury having Coca Cola and Pepsi is. Cola and whatnot. So, oh, I mean, oh. it was you talk about people just rising up on their hind legs and screaming. I and mean, then he they, had to it,
1: resign, but it, he didn't resign for uh but he resigned for health reasons
2: no no, I think he said that he had been charged with uh i don't know a, a, he was wrapped up in the whole thing with uh that they where they were trying to get oh Clinton. that's right so uh
1: well he could he was he was also awaiting a liver transplant
2: yes, that's exactly, so right.
1: he could either stay and fight the good fight in court and try to stay governor or yes. he could get out and try to save his health and get, and get on the liver transplant. Yes, yeah was yeah, very the,
2: very sick
1: he was as, very sick he, he still is
2: still is but.
1: he might have cost himself uh his life if he'd have stayed in that sort of a stressful situation no, i
2: think that's exactly right
1: all right is mike huckabee is the last one in your book uh, mike huckabee
2: made a couple of courageous decisions one involving education you, you talked about one of my what I thought some of my best decisions were I think the Lakeview decision where we raised money available for students in high school uh, was one of the best we said this, it's a state obligation the state has to step in not just the school districts and fund education to make it equal for everybody and Mike Huckby to his credit I thought he was going to oppose it And he came in, I think the decision was handed down November of 2002. He came in January of 2003 and said, I endorse it completely, and we need to go beyond what the court has said. We need to do more. We need to consolidate school districts and have uh, top-notch programs, uh, algebra, calculus, and whatnot, available to a broader range of students. Where is
1: Lakeview School District in the Delta?
2: It's in the Delta. I, yeah, I, I County, I think.
1: I don't understand the way they write these these cases. Lakeview School District Number Twenty Five versus Huckabee. It sounds like he's against it. The way you write those cases.
2: Well, you, you're, what you're doing is you're it's a case against the the state government.
1: So the Lakeview School District Number Twenty Five is against the so I get you. All
2: yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I think at first was uh, against Jim Guy Tucker. And then Huckabee became governor and the name changed.
1: And that's the one that's so I just want to tell everybody that you're listening to Up in Your Business with me. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the retired associate judge of the Arkansas Supreme Court, Mr. Robert L. Brown. Um, we're going to talk about some of Counselor Brown's fascinating knowledge of the Salem witch trials in the 1600s <laughs> in just a second. But first, I want to talk about uh, another important. Another important lawsuit you did, which was the uh, U.S. Term Limits.
2: Oh my gosh!
1: Versus Thornton. Again, that's written really funny to me. I'm not a lawyer. That's, yeah. that legal ease is odd to me. It well, sounds like Thornton's the bad guy, but
2: no, no, no. That was, he was U.S. Uh, term
1: Limits Incorporated is the government, and Thornton is saying, "What was he saying in his?"
2: Uh, he was named in the suit when it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. He was not originally part of the suit, but he was a congressman. And the term limits case had to do with where you were going to limit the terms of U.S. senators and U.S. congressmen. So that's why his name was part of the litigation when it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The people of Arkansas had voted to limit the term limits of governors and legislators and state senators, but also U.S. congressmen and U.S. senators. And the question was whether they had the authority to do that. And uh, my opinion said they did not. And it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Our case did. Changed the name. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that we were right by one vote. It was a 5-4 decision. If it had shifted the other way, we'd have term limits for congressmen and senators now.
1: I thought we do have term limits for congressmen and senators.
2: Not for U.S senators and congressmen they just, just have the to state. run all the time they have to run all the time which uh
1: but they can run forever
2: uh, yes that's right that's is right. every
1: state the same
2: as far as term limits uh
1: huh. or is each state individual get to vote th- on they, it different?
2: they can change it each state could be different but as far as the u.s that's a different ballpark and that's subject to the united states constitution and that's what i grounded the decision on the u.s constitution says You have certain qualifications to serve as a senator or representative, and the fact that you have served before in this role is not one of the named qualifications.
1: So um, those are the two you're proud of?
2: I am proud of that, yeah.
1: Which one are you wish that you could take back, or is there one? I know you're not supposed to dwell on things no, you do no, wrong I'm, ever, but we all kind of have well, one.
2: It's, it's hard to second-guess perfection, but I'll try.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good touche.
2: Uh, there are a couple of environmental cases that uh, I went along with what the uh, the federal agency, EPA, said about mercury being uh, poured into some of the Arkansas rivers and whatnot. And I went a Ed and I was with the majority and said that uh, we would allow that. And I don't think that was the right decision. How
1: does mercury get poured into an Arkansas to a river? It's,
2: it's a, a matter of how much mercury. Oh. And they said the level was so minimal that it was okay. I don't think any, any. mercury is a good idea. In hindsight. <laughs> In hindsight. But, what,
1: what, what factory has mercury?
2: Oh, gosh. I, I, think,
0: uh, I think it's a byproduct of coal production. I think or coal right. burning, yeah. I
2: think that's right.
1: That's why Coal, he,
0: coal power, yeah. Coal power. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, there's not yeah. much of that left, I don't think. I
2: don't know. Trying to phase it out.
1: Out of the 10 governors that we talked about in your book, which one was the one you didn't know? You said you knew nine of them.
2: I didn't know Francis Cherry. He was only a governor for one term and uh, just never had occasion to meet him. But I certainly knew all the rest.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. You know what we're coming up on now. Halloween. Halloween. The Salem Witch Trials. So I just want to remind everybody again that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and that I'm speaking today with retired associate judge of the Arkansas Supreme Court, Mr. Robert L. Brown, Bob Brown. So I met you when you were doing a fun talk on, um, on the Salem Witch Trials. And I remember... It was in the 1600s, I believe, and there were two sisters. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Yes, that's how it started. Okay, tell us. Well, it's it's just a bizarre thing. It's it's it was a witch hunt, you know, in 1692, and what happened was one morning the daughter of the priest, the minister in that town, which yeah, which was uh, Salem, Salem, Massachusetts, the minister in in that town, Salem Village his daughter began throwing fits and talking gibberish, just like the, uh, the actress in The Exorcist. I mean, contortions and all of this. And she had a first cousin who lived in the house with her, a woman was name Abigail Williams, I think. The first cousin took on the same attributes, you know, contortions and, you know, everything. Just think about The Exorcist. And that's what they were doing. You know, something was wrong. Have they
1: theorized what was wrong with them? No, they, they had no idea. They oh. were
2: witchcraft. Oh, so. They were bewitched. Oh, I got you. And, and that was a criminal offense. In fact, you could be executed for being a witch under the laws of, it was a colony there, the, Massachusetts, the Bay Colony in Massachusetts, what became Massachusetts. So it was a serious, serious thing. And they had people like Cotton Mather, who was a minister in Boston, who came down and said, yeah, I think these people are witches, you know. But they actually had trials, and it it wound up with about, I think, uh, maybe 19 people being executed, Uh, a couple of men, but by and large they were women, hanged as witches. And I think one man was uh, buried under stones, you know, but uh, for the most part they were hanged. They weren't burned at the stake. That happened in Europe. Sweden, they had a similar situation where they went after the witches. But uh, they were hanged.
1: Now these two girls didn't. They didn't hang. They didn't do anything to these two girls, did they?
2: No, as it because up, they
1: ended up pointing the finger at somebody. else. Absolutely.
2: Left. See, they were uh, ministers of good, and they could say, "Okay, I'm accusing her." It, it was something where you didn't actually have to have proof. You could just say that this woman, who is a beggar in town, she's a witch. She gave me the evil eye, whatever. And, and that's
1: how come I'm having fits.
2: And that's why I'm having fits. You know, I'm being bewitched by her. And there was someone else in that household we're talking about. the. It was the Paris, P-A-R-R-I-S, household. There was a slave that worked in that household from Barbados named Tichuba. And Tituba was accused of taking some of these young girls out into the field and teaching them events, you know, like heathen events, stripping to the waist and all that. Oh, rituals. Rituals, thank you. And uh, so Tituba and the two girls were the first three to be arrested and put in jail.
1: But then they didn't, not any of them, not any of those three ended up being executed because they, were
2: clever. It was just the people that they accused.
1: So they would go to jail and start saying, oh, I'm bewitched by the baker down the street.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. People they didn't like. People that they had heard bad things about.
1: So they and, became experts on who was a witch and who wasn't.
2: That's right. And when some of their peers, you know, uh, adolescents, they were all adolescents, prepubescent, when some of their Peers realized how much attention they were getting, and these were girls. Uh, they decided, "I want to join in with them. This is uh, kind of fun." I think such and such, so and so, is a witch. So it really spread throughout the community, and they started having trials, and they had magistrates sit and hear testimony against these people who were supposedly witches. And it was just a—it uh, it was hysteria, is what it was. Yeah,
1: it is. How did? Uh, how did was there a? Was there a uh, a jury, or did a judge just go, yeah, I believe her?
2: It was, you know, the magistrates pretty much decided it. And then they brought the charges, and then there was a jury after that. There was a jury, but the jury was not going to take an opposite approach from the magistrates. And the popular opinion was such it was pro-conviction. It was hard to vote in favor of a witch. Wow. (laughs) Because witches were, if you looked like a witch, if you were destitute, your hair was stringy, you had this, that, and the other, uh, you were considered to be evil for the community. Or you too smart. To be.
1: I thought they got rid of smart women like that. Oh, was, I was like, <laughs> I'd be burned at the stake.
2: Well, there was one person, and the governor of the colony. What? There was one person who was uh, accused. And the gov- and convicted. And the governor of the colony said, no, no, we're not going to convict her. We're not going to execute her. And there was such an outrage by the people in Salem. They said, no, we've got to execute her. And they did. And it was just <laughs> it was so terrible.
1: What what so what was the Barbados? Uh, Tituba. Uh, so didn't she end up uh, getting the young girls in trouble somehow?
2: Well, yes, she did. She did, but and they got her in trouble. Because the young
1: girls fingered her, and then she fingered the young girls back somehow.
2: Yeah, oh, they were all were in cahoots. And Tituba told stories about riding on brooms and that sort of thing. I in mean, the house? I mean, she made it all around the house and how she had seen this, that, and the other. Not so much the two girls that she had raised. She was the nanny for these girls in the house. But it was other girls that she talked about who were—
1: Did the preacher get to stay the preacher?
2: He got to stay the preacher, and he, about six months later, he said, you know, I think I was over my skis on this one. And he kind of backed up. And again, his parishioner said, you can't do that. So he kind of got more steel and said, okay, I think the, we have been besought by witchcraft. But then at the end, when everybody was reversing himself, he reversed himself and had to leave the community.
1: All right. We're at the end of the show counselor brown bob brown what's the name of your book again i saw it on amazon
2: uh defining moments
1: defining moments 10 governors defining moments yeah and you're writing another book now aren't you my path to justice yeah
2: yeah good for you
1: (laughs) is it about your life
2: it is memoir
1: memoir i love that that's really nice well i have you a gift for coming on the radio
2: oh hot dog
1: i know right uh, didn't she rip it up nice? She did. Maybe I should pull it out for you. Red, wow. white,
2: and blue. That's Red, good. Red, white,
1: and blue. Where is it?
2: <laughs> Gray? Minuscule. Perhaps it's in the bottom of the bag.
1: Oh, there you go! Wow. All right, here you go.
2: Oh, that's beautiful. It's a
1: U.S. flag, an Arkansas flag, and a Texas flag from where you were born. Oh, and the here's Lone your Star base, the Lone Star. Texas has a great flag. That Lone Star is. They do. It's great. Everything about Texas is kind of good. They get well, boots and hats and.
2: My son <laughs> and my grandchildren are there, and we were talking Aww. recently about people are leaving California. Who wants to live in California oh, now? Oh no, it's terrible. And they come into Texas.
1: Well, there you go. Well, I just want to say in closing, um, thank you to my listeners for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up in Your Business. Until then,
3: be brave and keep it up. We've got great news from the Dreamland Ballroom. Dancing into Dreamland is back for the 11th year. That's right, 11th annual Dancing into Dreamland happens on February 12th, 2022. They're changing up the formula a bit with a Valentine's Gala right there in the Dreamland Ballroom. Don't worry, all the things you love about the long-standing fundraiser are still in the mix. A real night of revelry in the centenarian structure, culminating around a friendly dance competition. Food, drink, a silent auction. Attendees will have the pleasure of viewing several spectacular dances, and varying genres will fill the night. You'll be able to vote for your favorites via text. It's a very fun evening. Dancing into dreamland. And not the least important thing is it's a terrific fundraiser for this extraordinary historic venue. A panel of celebrity judges will pick their favorite act and they'll be awarded a special cash prize. Dancing into Dreamland is back, February 2022.
0: You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.